Hello again and welcome to episode 15 of the podcast and it's a bit of a special episode in a way because this is the first one for ages where it's just you and me. I know I feel a little bit lonesome Tom. I know it's strange isn't it and it's also hopefully going to include a little bit more of me. I should uh, explain to listeners that we recorded three episodes back to back uh, a little while ago in which I was really ill and so I've been missing in action from the podcast pretty much for about the past six weeks. Uh, Oh (laughs) that's not true. You were poorly. I was really poorly and and we were busy so we knew we had to do three recordings on the bounce and I was just sitting here feeling terrible. So I am feeling better because it's now quite some time later and uh, I intend to speak. And that voice is sounding good. (laughs) Yes I'm sounding a lot. Oh I sounded so ill in some of those. So here I am back from the the edge of being nearly dead and here to talk about. (laughs) Is that called man flu? Sorry to gender things. Yes (laughs) it was very bad man flu um it was pretty awful i'm i i was a hero throughout (laughs) you are a hero forever so what are we talking about today then tom we are having another episode in which we talk uh, in depth about a teaching and learning strategy now the last time we did this it was you uh, talking about the jigsaw technique that's right. Uh, it was a good while ago now. So today we're here to talk about another one that we've tried with our students and which uh, is, is quite well known um, out there. Uh, and it's called flipped learning. Flipped learning. OK, so to all the laymen and women out there, what is flipped learning? How does it work? So it's actually quite a simple concept when you get your head around it. It all sounds terribly kind of impressive with that name, uh, but it deals with this idea that if we're not careful, the bit where we're in the room with our pupils can be the bit where we give out an enormous amount of information or content. And I'm sure we've all been there, uh, either receiving or giving the dreaded death by PowerPoint. Uh, And I should put my hand up here and and say that I am really not a fan of PowerPoint as a thing, uh, because (laughs) I think it does encourage the death by PowerPoint approach. There's a really interesting article out there in The Guardian, actually, in which somebody demolishes uh, PowerPoint as being this thing that just encourages passivity in the learners. You know, they sit there thinking, yes, I'll get this in my email later. Or if I write all these bullet points down, you know, really carefully, that must mean I've done everything that I need to do. And I think teachers on the quiet quite like it as well, because they sort of feel that they know they're going to get everything in there, everything's planned in advance. The trouble is, it's not a great use of that really scarce time we have in a room with our pupils because what we then do is having given them that really one-way traffic with all the information um, and they've sat there and they've either kind of written stuff off the board or they've waited for you to email it we then send them off to try and do really quite difficult things with that information all by themselves at home so actually what you're saying is is that all of that kind of front loading of material that we think they should be able to learn about without us in the room they come to the lesson preloaded with so that the really tricky stuff the higher order stuff maybe they are they're doing with us in the room with them exactly so you simply swap it around you you get them to do the easy stuff the the content loading when they're by themselves and you free up the space and the time in the classroom to do something much more meaningful and so it's really important to say at this point Flip learning is not about the snazziness of your resources. There's a kind of 
myth out there, I suppose, that if you're going to do flip learning, you have to be some kind of technical whiz who can make amazing videos of content that are going to wow your pupils, that you're not going to be able to do it without loads of equipment and loads of technical skills. But as Tom Sherrington says in his book, The Learning Rainforest, which we reviewed a couple of episodes ago, flip learning has been around forever. I mean, you don't have to give them a video. It could be a book. It could be a, a printed handout. It, it's not about the resource you give them. It's about what you can then do in your lesson time because they've had it in advance. And I think actually, whilst we're on to sharing, I think it's important for us to mention here that um, this is one strategy amongst many and what we're not attempting to do is to vilify direct instruction or direct teaching. There are times in lessons where we actually need to be leading from the front um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be passive as a nod to uh, Krista Dulu. But actually this is just a, a new approach where you know that you've got content that your pupils can cope with outside of the lesson independently. Yeah, absolutely. And this didn't come from us being zealots for you know progressive or against traditional or anything kind of political or idealistic like that it came from the really simple practical conversation that we had one day which just said something like we only see our students on a Monday because that's how it works on the PGCE course we've got all this stuff to get through we've got a new curriculum in Wales which is asking people to work in a cross-curricular way so we've got to start to include all of that on top of what we do already we're already pushed for time what can we do? And I think it's important to say that there were a lot of things that we knew about our students, the skills that they had, that told us that they would be able to cope with listening to and engaging with the pre-material before the session. Um, and we also knew that the thing that we wanted them to learn about lent itself to having that kind of pre-loading of material beforehand. And the thing that we were trying to get them to understand in more depth and detail was one of the assignments. In fact, we've done it twice, haven't we, Tom? Yeah, we've done it with both assignments because it was really the obvious target for a death by PowerPoint, to be perfectly honest. There's been traditionally a, you know, a PowerPoint or two that do the rounds, which just give out all the kind of nuts and bolts of what needs to be in the assignment, what sections there are, what goes on in the sections, how many words they should be, when the thing is due in. And I will put my hand up and say that more than once I have stood in front of my class for two hours and I have delivered that lecture and I just knew in my heart of hearts it was a terrible use of time. So how did it work when we did it? Well I simply took the PowerPoint which I had previously delivered live and I used the narrate function on PowerPoint to stick my dulcet tones over the top of it so that I could send it out to the students in advance. And this deals, I think, with that myth I mentioned earlier, that you have to be some kind of technical genius in order to do flipped learning, to make video resources. PowerPoint has it built in. Quite a lot of people don't realise this, that if you've got a PowerPoint presentation, there is a record function. Most laptops and iPads and things like that have got built-in microphones these days. And if you record, you can advance the slides, you can speak, it'll record your voice, it'll remember how long each slide needed to be there for. And if you then play the PowerPoint back, it will be there with your voice and the correct slide timings. You can turn it into a video file as well, which you can upload to YouTube. So I simply took the PowerPoint that was there already and repurposed it as a narrated video. And that's a really important thing to understand because one of the major arguments against doing flipped learning is that it's more work for teachers because they have to create these resources first, as well as obviously plan the deeper learning session that's going to be there. So do repurpose your materials if you're trying this. You 
don't have to make something new. That's a really good point. Um, and then the important conversation that we had once we knew that we were going to do this as flip learning was what was the aspect of this content, of their knowledge and skills in relation to the assignment that they actually really needed us to be there and they needed each other and a classroom-based scenario and activities in order to, to grapple with and, and to learn? Exactly. We needed to find something that they were going to be asked to do by themselves under the old model which either they were going to find difficult or was going to take them a lot of time or perhaps might not show up in their assignments in the end, thereby resulting in them having lower marks. And what we aimed for in this particular assignment, without going into too much detail for any of our listeners that don't know this piece, the students needed to talk about an impact that they'd had through doing something in the classroom. They were being asked about what they'd done to impact or improve some aspect of the learning in their classroom. And so we needed them to be able to describe that impact. They also needed to be able to provide evidence of that impact. And then having done a literature review in the previous part of the assignment, they needed to link all the way back to that literature and discuss in what way, how, what they saw, the impact that they saw kind of fitted with what the literature was saying. So there's a kind of triangle there, the impact, the evidence and the associated literature sources. And that's quite a hard thing to do when it's new to you, like it is for a lot of our students. I think it's a really good point, Tom. And actually, AFL really um, has a has an important part to play in this process of deciding whether flip learning is the right strategy or not. We knew that notoriously our student teachers found this part of the assignment quite difficult because it asked them to, to engage some high order master's level skills, like synthesizing lots of different material from different places, analysing, evaluating. So we needed to have them in the room with us so we could guide them through and model um, and stretch them and challenge them so they felt that they had the skills and the knowledge to be able to do that in their assignments. And that took the form, uh, if we're thinking about worries about technology it's nice to know that that took the form of an exercise printed on cards so they simply had cards in which they wrote about their impact a card for their evidence a card for their literature sources and they physically put them together on the desk in front of them so that they could see the way that those things linked together and how they needed to be set out in the assignment and lo and behold I would say that that area of the assignments was hugely improved as a result of doing that. I'm pleased to say I had no fails from my cohort this year. And I was exactly the same. And yes, I've got to say from a teaching perspective as well, initially I was a little bit reticent. I felt that I was in more of a facilitator role and I did feel a little bit uncomfortable that I wasn't there to kind of give them all of the information up front. Um, I was a little bit worried. And about you, Tom? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I must confess I like that role a lot and I, I, I try to get it whenever I can, which is maybe why I try to use it. I think it's what I said earlier. Everybody is kind of beguiled and tempted by that lovely PowerPoint-based session that runs on Rails. We all want it because it's easy. We don't have to think quite so hard. But I, I do, you know, I will bang on about the fact I think it's worth beating that temptation every day of the week. So what does what what does literature say about this strategy, Tom? Is there any evidence that supports the sort of validity of this as a, as a strategy? Well, this is an interesting one because, of course, the first thing I did when I was looking into this is I went to 
the great John Hattie. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> who we all know and love and has got something to say about pretty much everything. And what was interesting is that he doesn't actually mention flipped learning as a thing in okay. his ranking. I was in his book, Visible Learning for Teachers, today preparing for this recording. It's not in the index. And I was a little bit surprised about that. But thinking about it a little bit more and doing a little bit more reading, I think the point of it is that flipped learning is a thing that enables you to do a whole lot of other stuff in that time that you free up. So I guess the content loading bit uh, could be considered as homework. And we've mentioned about John Hattie's ranking and his effect size for homework before. He says very clearly about homework that it has a really variable effect. You have to give the right sort of homework and the right sort of homework is either drilling of stuff you know already or kind of surface level content loading stuff. John Hattie himself says that trying to do deep and difficult stuff in homework is nowhere near as effective. And I think that's probably the closest we get to an out and out kind of big thumbs up for flip learning from John Hattie. Of course, it also means that you can be doing things like feedback, reciprocal teaching, classroom discussion in that freed up time. And that's all stuff that pops up on his ranking with an effect size in excess of 0.8, which is, you know, really large. And I'm just uh, looking at some, not counter perspective, but just some words of, of advice and warning from Tom Sherrington, who, who talks about um, some of the things that we've nodded to at the start of the podcast, which is that you need to think about what your students can do and what skills and, uh, and prerequisite knowledge they will need to draw upon to do the kind of pre-work, the homework stage. And if you, if you worry or you think that they might not be able to do that independently without you there or without the guide from parents and carers at home then it might not be the right time to use this strategy but he does say that students can be trained in these skills that pay in dividends later on and what he says is if you never train them in those skills you will never feel confident that is going to deliver the rigor that you require when you do it yeah i think that is a recurring theme with a lot of these things isn't it you can't just expect pupils to be able to do these difficult things that where they they work independently you've got to put the work in um, i read a really interesting article about it today actually i was looking uh, because you know you have to be critical about these these things i was looking for articles which were against flipped learning oh well uh, done <laughs> i had a good old read Interestingly, uh, my first uh, port of call was something I found in, a, in an internet search that basically said flipped learning doesn't work. Um, but then I discovered it was an opinion piece from a pupil in a school newspaper website. And he was basically saying, come on, teachers, get on with it and teach like you're supposed to, which I found was really kind of interesting that sometimes the pupils can be quite old school about what a teacher is and what a teacher is for. The other one I found was, was one called uh, The Flip End of a Love Affair by Shelley Wright. It was basically saying why I don't use flipped learning anymore. And I thought, ah, oh, here we are. Here's somebody who's tried flipped learning and found it completely doesn't work. When I read the article, it was a lot more subtle. In fact, she'd done flipped learning. She'd found it really successful. But then her pupils had actually gone above and beyond flipped learning. So she didn't need it anymore. And she'd moved on from actually providing the content in advance and then doing all the deeper, meaningful learning to a point where the pupils were actually so trained to be independent and free thinking that they were going out and finding the stuff themselves, leading their own learning, doing their own groupings and all of that kind of thing. So that the reason that she actually gave up on flipped learning was that she didn't need it anymore. I think um, the important thing that it speaks to um, that you've kind of mentioned there as well is that our pupils 
will need to be independent learners later on in their adult academic and in employment careers. So we do need to take these steps towards taking the rails away <laughs> and taking the scaffolds away. And I, what rung true with me, um, obviously having having done this with postgraduate students, was that there's a lot of work to be done in prepping post-16 students for work at undergraduate level. Um, they will often in an undergraduate programme have to engage in a seminar discussion that will have been preloaded, yes, with a lecture, or indeed they might encounter some pre-work and pre-reading by way of flipped learning. So it's kind of setting them up, A, with you know experience of that scenario, uh, and B, with the skills to be able to confidently engage in some of the discursive and problem-solving work that can come off the back of a flipped learning episode. Yeah and I think a really important thing to do if you're going to try and get people on board with this is just to be really straight with them about why you're doing it. I I think that you need sometimes to pull the curtain back and explain what's going on behind the scenes and so that you won't get for example a pupil like that one writing uh, in that school newspaper thinking their teacher was kind of slacking off by giving all the work in advance explain to them that you're going to give them that resource so that they can access it in a comfortable place at home. They can look at it as many times as they like. They can do it whenever they feel they want to so that you can do something more meaningful in class. And I certainly found that our student teachers, although they are a fairly motivated crowd, but they were very receptive, I thought, to that idea. In terms of being time poor as well, I, I, you know, not to be too utilitarian about it, but there's a lot of content that teachers have to cover, a lot of cu- curriculum content. And teachers often have concerns about how best to use their time, the very precious time they have with the learners. And I think if this can be seen as a way of still delivering that really important um, content, but creating the space and time to do some of that sort of higher order exploratory stuff that Sherrington talks about in the kind of mode B aspect of his book that uh, that teachers and learners really crave. Yeah, and I personally really crave that as a teacher. And I would recommend that anyone that wants to give it a go, if you can find an appropriate moment, not every single lesson, not every single day, but an appropriate part of your specification or curriculum, I really would recommend you give it a try. Okay, Tom, it's uh, it's your turn this week for a well-being slot. We have to actually do some work this week. I know. <laughs> I've just remembered why we like having guests. So what would you like to share with our listeners uh, to help improve their well-being this week? Okay, so I'm going to take you back in the kind of preamble to this. You know me, I like to make these into kind of long Jack and Ori episodes. <laughs> I'm going to take you back to my youth a very long time ago when oh. I was learning to be a musician. And like so many young musicians, I joined my local youth orchestra in my town. And there I was uh, scraping away on my violin. And, you know, uh, orchestras are very hierarchical places everybody knows their place you know in the pecking order and of course I started very low in the pecking order and towards the front of the string section were these amazing string players who were on the county youth orchestra you know and we all looked up to them and thought they were amazing and all the rest of it 
After a while, uh, I became good enough to join the County Youth Orchestra, so off I toddled to the County Youth Orchestra, and lo and behold, I was right at the back, and right at the front were people who were on the National Youth Orchestra. And, you know, again, we all bowed down to them and thought they were amazing. And then, you know, after a little while, I got good enough to join the National Youth Orchestra of Wales. I was very lucky. I had a fantastic time. I was somewhere in the middle, never could did quite make it to the front, and... Again, there were people right at the top of that tree who were in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And, you know, I never had a cat's chance in hell of getting into the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. I was happy enough on the National Youth Orchestra of Wales. But the point is that as a musician, you have to make your peace quite early on with the fact that there is always going to be somebody better than you. It's not quite like maybe being a 100 meter runner or something like that, where you could legitimately aim to be the best in the world, because, you know, there is actually a best in the world at that. There are no best in the worlds in music. Um, Once you reach a certain point, you know, you might be the best at something, playing a particular kind of music, but there'll be always somebody better at playing a different kind of music. And I really genuinely think that how you kind of approach that sudden realisation you come to during your formative years that there's always going to be somebody better than you has a really big effect on your kind of happiness and, and your well-being. And I'm pleased to say I kind of did make my peace with it. And once I got to university, I realised that the best thing to do with those people who were better than me, and there were plenty of people better than me and an awful lot of things at university, was not to feel jealous of them or hate them or want to kind of push them down the stairs so that they couldn't play anymore or anything (laughs) like that (laughs) or to kind of resent them or even to kind of not even to beat yourself up because you weren't as good as them the very very best thing that you could do for your own well-being and actually to improve yourself was to go and work with them to go and play with them And I had some fantastic experiences playing music with people who were a lot better than me. Uh, And they were the people who challenged me and pushed me on and made me better. And I've got to say, actually, they were usually the nicest people to work with as well. Absolutely. And and so many parallels with teaching. I think it's a useful, really useful uh, Jack and Nori episode there, Tom, (laughs) with a lovely analogy. But yeah, you're right. And there's this this feeling um, in education, sometimes it can be your enemy, that nothing is ever finished and you're never quite the best you can be because there's always different ways that you can improve and you know there's no I mean we do have standards of course we have standards but you know you can always seek to know more to enhance your pupils learning better you know it's it's never ending so I think that's a really useful sentiment to kind of be an antidote to that that feeling of um of of worthlessness that we sometimes (laughs) fall foul of I'm not saying you know I'm not saying I was that enlightened every single day of the week that I never occasionally had moments where I thought oh you know I'll never be as good as so and so but I think just trying to minimize those and and realizing that those really really genuinely great people um are usually the kindest and the most willing to share and the most willing to work with people so if you're out there and you're feeling a bit jaded or a bit short of ideas or you you don't think you're very good at something rather than suffering by yourself and letting it eat you up 
go and find someone that you think is amazing and very, very good at things and see if they'll work with you or do what I do and make a podcast with them. <laughs> and I think what you'll find is that they will also have things that they feel they don't do well. You'll, it'll, it'll give you a human perspective on, on, the, on the holy grail of teachers in your school. Definitely. Right, time for the shout out slot. And I think you've got this one, Emma. I have. I'm going to tee up episode 16, Tom, and I'm going to tee up uh, four very special guests that we've got coming out to you and into your ears in two weeks time. They are four of my student teachers on the PGC Secondary Drama Programme and there's a little bit of a story attached to this because one of them, Brandon, who you will meet in a couple of weeks time, emailed me very excitedly a few weeks back uh, having just been to listen to a talk delivered by none other than Kirsty Williams, our Minister for Education in Wales. And it was a very inspired person that I had on the other end of, <laughs> of the email. He was incredibly excited about what he had heard. He was enthused and he just wanted to share that with me. And I thought, well, you know what? You can share that with the rest of the world. So we're going to get in Mira, Brandon, Joe and Tom. And I want to give a shout out to them and, and say a big thank you to them for coming on because they've got some really inspiring things to tell you all. Yeah, I would agree with that and say that we have actually recorded their episode already. The four of them are absolute podcasting legends. So I would tune in for that episode if I were you. And uh, by some amazing chance, I've also got you doing something to try. So what have you got this time? <laughs> yeah, okay. So I was um, having a little nosy around on Twitter, as I sometimes do, of a weekend with a cup of tea on my sofa. And I noticed an article that was written by Mark Esner for the Times Educational Supplement. And it was about preparing GCSE and A-level pupils for exams and it was about how to prep them and give them some really good examples of revision techniques. And something that caught my eye was a technique that you use in class that effectively turns your pupils' classwork into a usable revision aid down the line. He recommended an approach that comes from across the Atlantic in the US called Cornell Notes. What this is, is a, a note-taking system that was actually devised in the 40s by somebody called Walter Pork, an education professor at Cornell University. And, and he advocated its use in his best-selling book, How to Study in College. What it is, it's it kind of gives a nod to all of those undergraduate students out there who can remember sitting in a lecture theatre for the first time being given this really inspiring lecture and writing every single thing down for fear that uh, they might miss something and not necessarily really knowing what they should write down and what they shouldn't. Or indeed, undergraduate students sat in a lecture who were zoning in and zoning out of said lecture. <laughs> or undergraduates like me who would generally write the date and title and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> and it struck me that actually nobody ever really taught me how to write lecture notes. That's a very good point. You? No, nobody taught me how to write lecture notes, hence I wrote almost none. <laughs> so I guess Walter Pork noticed this discrepancy and therefore devised and designed and imparted a note-taking system for undergraduates and, and well anybody really and what Mark Esner is saying is that pupils in classrooms could use it. What it involves is essentially taking your piece of note paper 
and dividing it into thirds. The first third being the kind of main area that you would normally write your notes. So if you've got a normal piece of A4 note paper, the margin and maybe a little bit of extra space would be enough for your left hand portion of the page. The right hand side of the page where you normally write your notes can be just a little bit smaller than usual. So you've got kind of a smaller left hand column and a slightly larger right hand column. And then underneath your final third can be sort of I don't know a, th- a third of the page from the bottom up I'm not very good at describing <laughs> it's difficult in an audio medium isn't it google it google it <laughs> yeah go so google you split your page into three thirds and in those three thirds you do different things okay step one in your right hand third so kind of where you would normally traditionally write your notes this is the record phase so during the lecture you use the note taking column on the right to record the lecture using what he calls telegraphic sentences now actually telegraphic sentences comes from telegrams and what that means is short concise sentences so nothing too wordy so that these these notes are going to be really kind of punchy and 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 useful for when you're trying to revise them later on down the line so in that right hand column you've got key notes on things like dates details definitions formulas concrete examples pictures so nothing too far from probably what you already write in your notes but then this is where the magic happens in the column on your left or to the left this is kind of step two and this is the recall column And what the advice is, is that in that column, during the lecture also, you're writing down keywords. You're distilling the main notes on the right-hand side into keywords, but also writing key questions so that you can test yourself on the material afterwards. You might also note on the left-hand side kind of the big ideas of the lecture. So what you're doing there is you're distilling. You're distilling the lecture to its essence and you're writing questions so you could test yourself on those notes after the lecture. What that does is it promotes a more active engagement in the lecture. Um, So rather than kind of sitting passively as someone receiving the information, you're actually having to use that information and devise questions for it at the same time. Now, also, again, magic can happen after the lecture in the final third, that bottom third of the page. And that step is the summarise step. So what is suggested is that you use that space after the lecture to summarise your notes by way of testing yourself on how much you know. Now, what you could do is you could hide the right-hand column and simply test yourself using the questions that you wrote on the left and see how much you can remember. Or indeed, you could try and summarise and you could add some additional information that you found out since the lecture. So taking those notes a little bit deeper. There are multiple ways of doing it. But essentially, if you use this in a secondary context or maybe in a very, very basic way you could use in a primary context, you're turning exercise books and the content from the lesson into a revision aid. So they've got on the right hand side, the main notes from some direct teaching you've been doing on the left hand side, some key questions to test themselves and then a space for them to, for their homework down the line, practice retrieving that information that they've learned. 
And I must say, I tried this when you showed me this, but I used it in a slightly different way. I, uh, like we all do, received a large and indigestible document in my email that I was supposed to read. I won't name the document in case uh, the person responsible for it is listening. And I created a kind of Cornell page layout by dragging my left margin across and making it really big and dragging my bottom margin up and making it really big printing the document, which is where we slightly kill some trees, and doing that but with the text in the main block. And I found it a really useful way to kind of digest the important themes and put myself little comments and things like that. I found it really helpful, so thank you. So this is actually rooted in some in some useful research that's going on in the realm of cognitive science. Weinstein and Sumeraki's book, Understanding How We Learn, A Visual Guide from 2019, um, they talk at the back and give some really great guidance actually to pupils about revision. And they say that research from the field of applied behaviour analysis recommends the use of guided notes. They actually hold up guided notes as a really, uh, a really good example of practice that helps pupils understand and remember and be able to kind of convert the short-term into long-term memory but whatever it is that you're trying to teach. They say it's a more effective note-taking approach. It has been proven to improve note-taking and learning from lectures and they say that teachers slash lecturers can also provide guided note resources containing cues and blank spaces so that pupils or students are prompted to take notes about specific concepts covered in lessons. So even if you don't do it Cornell note style if you've got a section of the lesson where you're doing some uh, direct teaching the important thing is to have really thought about what you want your pupils to capture and to think about and to actively engage with during that direct teaching and then providing a resource that guides them and guides their notes so they know what it is that you want them to look for. Cornell notes, get out there and start using them. I have to say this episode has been an absolute treasure trove of things to do, particularly with your older pupils, isn't it? You're you're more kind of high level learners. Yeah, which is quite timely actually when we as we uh, as we approach exam period. <sighs> Time of year, yeah. So there we go, loads of things for you to use. Thanks, Emma. It's been nice doing a podcast uh, just the two of us again. <laughs> it has been nice and you're sounding much, much better. Oh, so much perk, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for keeping the faith. Okay, we will be back next time with the aforementioned four students. I really do recommend uh, getting yourself ready to listen to that because they were absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, and they're going to give you some really important key messages about uh, training to be a teacher as well. certainly are. So until then, we'll say bye-bye. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by me, Emma Thayer, and Tom Breeze. This episode was brought to you by Flipped Learning, Cornell Notes and all the people better than us. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us and tell your friends. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Emathea underscore CMU and Tom is at Thomas Breeze. Tune in next time to hear our student teachers discussing the future of education. It's going to be unmissable. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.